Years ago, when Burnett and I were still newlyweds, we were attending a large church in Southern California. It was on a Sunday morning that they were going to be doing some baby dedications. And what's not to like about a baby dedication? Seeing those proud new parents stand up with those adorable little babies. And, and of course, one of the best parts is the suspense as you wait to see what that little bundle of joy is going to do to the pastor when the parents hand him the baby. Some babies stay asleep. Sometimes they cry. Sometimes they grab the microphone. Sometimes they burp, or worse. Unfortunately, at this particular baby dedication, I got sidetracked watching a different drama unfold. There were a bunch of couples standing across the front, but one couple caught my eye. The new daddy in this family seemed almost invisible. He was sort of tucked in behind his wife. She was a, a large woman and he was fairly small in his build. But it wasn't just the size difference. She seemed to be the one who was really running the show. I mean, she held on to the baby, and she was the one who spoke to the pastor when their turn came. And uh, her husband just stayed quietly behind her, not even making eye contact. And when they returned to their seats, I watched as he very meekly followed her up the aisle with his hand tucked in the crook of her arm. Everything about it told me that <clears throat> this guy was a mouse, and his wife was boss. Now, I have no problem with strong moms, but everything about the way this couple was conducting themselves told me that there was something unhealthy in their relationship. And it bugged me enough that I actually whispered something to Burnett about it. As it turned out, their seat was just a row or two in front of ours, so I had a good view. Which is also why, when they arrived at their row, I had a ringside seat to watch as this bossy woman gently placed her husband's hand on the back of the pew so that he could feel his way back to their seats. Wow. Talk about moving rapidly from being critical to being ashamed. This guy wasn't a mouse. He was a brave man. Despite a handicap, he was stepping into the demanding job of being a dad. And his wife? She wasn't bossy. She was willing to come alongside her husband in sacrificial ways beyond what many marriages require to help him through his blindness. And I was no great judge of humanity. I was just a young guy with too many opinions about things that I didn't understand. Ever done something like that? I suspect if we are really honest with ourselves, we've all made mistakes like that. Maybe we still do. I've heard it said that there are really only two types of people in the world. Those who divide people into two types and those who don't. Putting people into categories and making snap judgments without knowing all the facts it's a pretty easy habit to get into, isn't it? Jesus knew that tendency all too well. He lived in a time and a place when there was no concern about diversity or inclusion. The divisions between groups of people were sharp, and it was a highly stratified society divided by race and religion and class. 
In calling people to prepare themselves to live as citizens of God's kingdom, Jesus not only preached that there needed to be personal transformation, he also preached there had to be a transformation in how people evaluate and judge other people. Let's take a look at this next section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We are now in Matthew chapter 7, the first six verses. Here's what it says. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, at one level, this teaching is pretty simple. Don't judge other people. But it could also be confusing because no sooner has Jesus counseled folks not to judge than he tells them to uh, avoid people that he rather unflatteringly labels as dogs and pigs. You gotta admit, labeling someone as a pig sounds just a tiny bit judgmental, doesn't it? Where the confusion comes from is in understanding what Jesus meant by the word judge. Like many words, judge can have multiple meanings. If you were to just limit yourself to the way the word is used in the New Testament, you would find that judging often refers to using discernment. Now, we know that discernment is an important thing to develop. When I get a heartbreaking email from a woman claiming to be a Christian sister whose recently deceased husband happened to be a Nigerian general who left her a secret stash of gold worth millions, and she's reaching out to see if she and I could work together to secure that treasure. Discernment means that I know a scam when I see one, and I don't reply to that email. The whole book of Proverbs is all about learning wisdom, becoming discerning, learning to recognize people, places, and practices that could get us in trouble. Jesus certainly isn't suggesting that his followers should not use good judgment. Judging can also refer to the passing of a sentence in a court of law. The Bible endorses the God-ordained role of government in maintaining order and punishing dangerous criminals. Jesus isn't suggesting that duly appointed judges should pardon every accused person that stands before them in a court of law. Judging and the passing of condemning decisions can also occur outside of a court of law. And the judgment is based not on the rule of law, but on my own sense of who is better or worse than me. It's the kind of thing I was guilty of all those years ago when I passed judgment on a couple I didn't even know. I took a look at some outward behavior and allowed myself to pass a snap verdict that they were inferior to me. 
that's the kind of judgment that Jesus judged would result in God's judgment. As I mentioned, in the time and place where Jesus was preaching, divisions around race, religion, or social status were stark. Nobody blinked an eye when someone was heard lumping people into groups. And nobody was the least bit shocked that those groups refused to respect each other. If you want to get a glimpse of this, take a look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. Jesus here has gone to the home of Matthew, a tax collector, to have a meal. And we've talked before about how tax collectors were a class of people hated by the Jews. The tax collectors were Jews, but they had chosen to work for the oppressive Romans to enforce taxes on their own people. And they were financially rewarded handsomely for doing so. So to be labeled as one of the tax collectors not only named your job, it also placed you into a detested subgroup of Jews. Now, as we read this passage, you're going to see four groups of Jews referred to. Tax collectors will be one of them. See if you can spot the other three. Ready? As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, did you spot the four groups? Well, obviously there's tax collectors. That was a gimme. And then we have Jesus' disciples, uh, Jesus' followers. No surprise there. And then we have the Pharisees. Now, these guys were the polar opposite of tax collectors. They were ultra-Orthodox. Then there's one more named group in this passage, and that is sinners. How's that for an identity group? It's almost like watching football and labeling someone a Raiders fan. And check it out. Nobody bats an eye about that label. It was an established way to group people. The Pharisees aren't the least bit embarrassed in a public conversation to say it out loud. Not only are they willing to make the distinction, they're convinced that someone like Jesus should not be associating with people like that. So how did Jesus respond? Remember I said at the outset that there are two types of people in the world, those who divide people into two groups and those who don't. Turns out that Jesus is one of those who divides people into two groups. Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So, here are Jesus' groupings. There are the healthy versus the sick, and the righteous versus sinners. However, Jesus is playing loose with the categories. Jesus didn't really think that the healthy were healthy, and he didn't think, in this case, that the righteous were really righteous. They were just self-righteous. 
Jesus knew those Pharisees were convinced they were healthier and more righteous than everyone else. It, it was that inner pride that made them feel so comfortable labeling those who didn't perform up to their standards as sinners and people to be avoided. So Jesus played along. He used a label they eagerly applied to themselves. Others might be wretched sinners, but they, they were the righteous. The question they posed was, why are you hanging around with these sickos instead of with us beautiful people? And Jesus' rather sarcastic answer was, well, obviously people as beautiful and healthy and righteous as you have no need for what I'm offering. Rather than seeing bad behavior as a reason to shun, Jesus saw hurting people that were worthy of love. Do you see now why Jesus told his students not to judge? They lived in a cultural environment where condemning people for their failures was an enshrined norm among the religiously devout. Jesus says quite simply, stop it. Jesus wasn't saying we shouldn't identify bad behavior as bad. Jesus, on a regular basis, told people that they needed to repent and stop sinning. In fact, repentance is one of the primary messages of this whole sermon. What he was calling out was viewing others through self-righteous rather than humble eyes. And self-righteousness will always cloud your vision. That's the point of his silly story in verses 3 through 5. He pictures there someone who has spotted a, a speck of something in a brother's eye. And then they set about trying to do some minor ophthalmic surgery while they are totally unaware that there's actually a two-by-four sticking out of their own eye. The would-be surgeon has been quick to spot a defect in someone else. Actually, since it is just a speck, I think we have to conclude that the speck spotter was actually eagerly looking to spot defects in others. Do you know why some people find it gratifying to spot specks in others? Well, for one thing, it's a way to validate to themselves and others that they are truly refined speck spotters. It's an indicator of just how seriously they think about specks and how diligent they are in wanting only the highest and the best. It also helps to establish their position on the speck spotting ladder. I mean, doesn't it seem obvious if they are that attuned to detail that their own lives must be speckless? People who wear white gloves must live in clean houses, right? But Jesus says, not so fast. Our imaginary speck spotter may be keen on spotting tiny things, but Jesus says he's blind to something far bigger that is completely distorting his own vision. It's not a speck, it's a plank. That's what self-righteousness does. Sometimes we say a person can't see the forest for the trees. In this case, maybe we should say that it is possible to miss the forest for the sawdust. Have you ever encountered a speck spotter? You know the type, they're quick to spot the flaws in others. 
they're often quick to point them out to their friends and family. People seem to disappoint them on a regular basis. They often drift from one church to another because there's always something that isn't quite right. Sometimes they even try to take other people with them just to help validate that their way really was the right way. Here's a tougher question, and the one I think Jesus wants us to ask ourselves. Are you a spec spotter? Am I a spec spotter? Are, are you that person who is often irritated and disappointed in others? Martin Lloyd-Jones suggests some characteristics of spec spotters. He says that they're often ready to give judgment on matters of no direct concern to them. Uh, they make decisions based on personal prejudice rather than godly principle. They habitually express opinions without knowing all the facts. They rarely take the trouble to understand the circumstances and are never ready to excuse or exercise mercy. You know, the really unfortunate thing is that Jesus was right about the plank problem. The biggest speck spotters usually have the hardest time spotting it in themselves. I think it's a divine act of mercy when God gives us a glimpse of our own planks. That's what it was for me that day watching the baby dedication. God, in his kindness, suddenly put a mirror in front of me and said, Look at that plank, Tim. Not very attractive, is it? So does this mean we should never confront a brother or sister's sin? Well, of course not. Scripture offers plenty of instruction to followers of Jesus that we should help each other out. Here's one example. It was Paul's counsel to a young pastor. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He said, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Reproving, rebuking, exhorting. There is a time, even a duty, for spiritually mature believers to actively help others deal with their specs, big and small. But note how Paul tempers it by saying that it should be done with patience and teaching. In other words, there is kindness and a willingness to walk with people and increase their understanding. We aren't supposed to browbeat people. Not judging doesn't mean we don't see specks in others for what they are. That is moral discernment. But it means we have first been willing to see our own specks and planks and have learned to confess and receive God's grace. Then, and only then, are we prepared to respond rightly to the specks that we see in others. Self-righteous judges see specks as indicators that others are less than. But when brothers and sisters view each other with humility, as God sees them, they realize that specks are not a sign of greater than or less than, 
because we've all come to the cross as sinners and we all are equally in need of grace. Well, Jesus' little story ends with the speck spotter helping his brother to remove the speck. Not judging doesn't mean a sort of moral apathy where we all agree that everybody has specks and planks. I won't mention yours if you don't mention mine. And, and we can all just blindly stumble on together. Now, part of growing in Christ includes a lot of speck removal. And part of being in fellowship with each other means we're helping each other in that process. That can't happen if we can never call a speck a speck, if we don't identify sin as sin. However, speck spotters who think they are speckless will tend to treat speckled people without respect. They see others as unworthy or beneath them because of their specks. That is a perspective that is only possible if we believe ourselves to be speckless. On the other hand, the person who by God's grace has caught a glimpse of their own eye-blinding monster and knows their own struggle comes to their brother's speck with a new attitude. They come with gentleness. They are more circumspect. A speck is still a speck, but the brother or sister so afflicted is not seen as a lesser person, but a fellow sufferer to be assisted with grace and mercy. The speck is no longer a mark of inferiority, but rather a common malady to be lovingly addressed by a fellow sufferer. Well, okay, I think we have probably inspected that enough. Let's talk briefly about dogs and pigs. It is a bit jarring coming out of this section about not judging to immediately hear Jesus labeling some people as dogs and pigs. And could I just point out that there is absolutely nothing endearing about those titles? Jesus wasn't trying to evoke quaint images of petting zoos or old McDonald's farm. The dogs he was referring to were wild packs of mongrels that were a public menace. And of course, few animals would have been less welcome in a Jewish home than a pig an animal famous for its ceremonial uncleanness. In contrast to these mad dogs and filthy hogs, Jesus pictures someone with a bag of pearls. Now, in ancient Palestine, pearls were even more precious than diamonds. So Jesus pictures this scenario where someone decides to lay out their most precious possession in front of the dregs of the animal kingdom. And as soon as the dogs and hogs realize they can't eat it, they simply trample it and then turn on the person who offered them the pearls and tear him apart as well. Not surprisingly, Jesus says in that situation, a wise person will keep their pearls in the bag. So what on earth is he talking about? There are two main ways that Bible scholars understand this teaching. First is that the image of dogs and pigs may have implications for Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish faith who are often viewed as unclean. In this understanding, what Jesus is saying is that the time to share the message of the gospel with the Gentiles is not yet. They are not ready to receive it 
speaking at the time when Jesus is teaching there in Palestine. We know that in other places, Jesus told his disciples to focus on preaching first to the Jews, though Jesus certainly did interact and preach to Gentiles as well, and sharing the gospel with the Gentiles became the major emphasis of the early church. The other way this is understood is that he may be speaking uh, to more broadly about those who absolutely reject the gospel, Jew or Gentile, and who have nothing but contempt for the message of Jesus. In those situations, Jesus says a time comes when it's foolish to continue offering what is precious to those who will only treat it as garbage. I tend to lean toward that second interpretation. Again, this makes the point that Christians are not to live without moral discernment. There are people whose resistance to the gospel crosses a line. Knowing when you've encountered that person is a very individual thing and something I think we need to pray over carefully. But we certainly see numerous examples in Scripture where the apostles encountered people who were so hostile to the message that we're told they literally shook the dust off their feet as they walked away. A graphic symbol that they were done with the conversation. To be sure, many who come to Christ have gone through a time of mocking and resisting that message, so it's not that we refuse to share with those who are resistant. The commands to love our enemies and do good to those who persecute still hold true, regardless of how others respond. But there are situations where it's pointless to speak or witness unless and until God opens a person's heart. If you've been trying to witness to someone, but all they want to do is mock or attack you, it may be time to stop talking. Keep living out Jesus' love, but stop tossing pearls where they will simply be trampled. To keep pressing into those situations when God's Spirit is not leading is simply to set ourselves up for hurt. Mountain folk live with humility. We prayerfully ask God to first and foremost help us to see ourselves. We repent of any hypercritical spirit or self-righteous condemning of others. When God does lead us to go to a brother or sister regarding an area of sin, we go with gentleness, patience, compassion, knowing deeply how much we too need God's grace to change. We're also people of growing discernment, eager to share what God has done in our lives, but also wise enough to know when and where that story will not be welcome. That's how mountain folk live.